And it causes us our own anguish because we realize what we've done. But it causes God anguish because God has a plan for us. And that plan isn't to be overcome by the sin that enslaves our hearts. That plan is not for this pain to be once and forever a reality of life. But God is leading us beyond that. The Spirit of God is working within us to take us beyond that. To that point where God decides, you know, there's consequences for your actions. I contain the chaos, the firmament raised up in the deeps. There's safety here. But if you go outside those bounds, you've gone outside the bounds of grace. And that's where, as Scripture tends to to tell us, we start to devour one another. In fact, Hosea 10 says as much. We start to devour one another. We start to devour ourselves. We just lose trust in the God who created us. But man, if we shouldn't sing to the heavens, shout to the heavens, be so full of joy that even in those moments when we're at our worst, God is still right there. God is still right there reaching out to us, calling out to us, pointing us to the path that leads to life. The path that puts love over self. The path that says, I have been blessed so much, and it's not just for me, but I've been blessed to bless. Remember, when we talk about Abraham, when we talk about the Israelites who came after Abraham, we are talking about a person, a people, a nation, who were blessed to be blessed. And they lost sight of that. And thus, the anguish that we hear from God through Hosea in chapter 11 today it, and it's amazing how early it starts. We, we understand the patriarchs in Genesis, they were deeply flawed at times. They had a difficult time trusting God. We understand that shortly after the Israelites are delivered from slavery in Egypt by God's great power, that they are given the human dignity to be set free from slavery. That they start to complain in the wilderness that they don't have the pots of meat that their slaveholders gave them in Egypt. They start to complain that they don't have water to drink. God, in God's great compassion, doesn't lash out against them, but provides them manna and quail. And this cycle continues to go on and on throughout Scripture, on and on throughout history. And it becomes especially apparent in Samuel verse, or 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel's been called to lead the people as a kind of judge, a prophet, pointing them towards God, not to himself, but to God, to simply trust in the teaching of God, simply entrust in the direction that God has given them for life. And they will not only thrive as a nation if they trust in God, but they will be that light to the nations. But as nations around them grow stronger, build militaries, and things of this nature, they decide we must be like the other nations. You see, there was the question, will they trust in God for their existence, for their deliverance, 
for their abundance? Or will they trust in something else? Hosea 11 tells us they trusted in the bells, other gods. They trusted in their own might, their own strength. They demanded that God give them a king. And God warned them of the great dangers of such a request and reminded them that I have created you. I have breathed the breath of life into you. I have given you the direction and the way to live. I am here with you today. There's nothing else you need. They said, nope. You've got to have a king. Because a king will build up a military. A king will protect us from the other nations. A king will keep us from going into exile. Well, we know how the story goes. That that they were trying so hard to do on their own to avoid exile, to avoid being conquered by another nation and sent off into foreign lands, it came reality. Because they didn't rely on the God of all creation. And not only that, by doing that, they were no longer a light to the nations. They were a light of the nations. And the light of the nations doesn't burn, it's darkness. By becoming so consumed by self and their desire to preserve themselves, they wound up walking down the path of destruction. They wound up looking just like everybody else instead of being holy and set apart. But there's God's compassion crying out again, saying, I don't care what you've done to yourselves. I don't care that you didn't listen to me the first time or the second time or the 50th time or the thousandth time. My grace, my compassion are there with you still. There with you still. That should bring joy to our hearts. That should bring joy to our hearts. Because we know God's joy is with us still. God goes forward with us each and every step of the way. When we don't see God, it's not because God isn't there. It's because we took our eyes off of God. This is a story of compassion. A story of grace. This is a story of a God who says he's holy. But if you listen closely in Hosea, when God says, I am holy, I am not mortal. He's relenting from the possibility of just destroying everything and starting over. Of destroying the Israelites and starting from scratch. Relenting of the idea of what took place in the flood with Noah. Because he is here. He is holy. He's not like the leaders of nations who when they decide someone's not like them or like they want them to be, they'll take care of it the hard way. Well, they'll take care of it the easy way. God takes care of it the hard way. The holy God offers grace and compassion and continues to reach out to us and call out to us and offer healing, offer unity, offer a future. When we're working so hard for our own future and forgetting others that we bring ourselves into the past. And we make ourselves history. 
This is the work of God, that the holy God is not just this far-off, transcendent creator of the world whom, if we step out of line, we better dodge the lightning bolts. That's a different kind of God than we celebrate, than we worship. The God we celebrate and worship is one who wouldn't stay far away. The one who walked with humanity in the garden, and though humanity kept running as fast as they could further and further away, was running even faster behind us. Because we may grow weary, we may grow tired, our God will never run out of breath. Our God will never run out of breath. And that's a call to us. That's a call to us to reflect on this God who wants nothing more than to be in communion with us. This is not simply a God barking orders at us, and if we annoy God, God's going to just wipe us off the face of this earth or wipe, wipe away creation with one swipe. Because that's not how God operates. God is not about destruction. God is about transformation. God is not about sending us off into the past. God is about giving us a great and glorious future where we rediscover the fullness of the love of God as well as the fullness of the love of our neighbor. Where we hear the call and message of Jesus Christ as Paul writes in Philippians 2. Think about that. Jesus came in the form of a slave. Jesus even tells his own disciples on earth that I've come not to be served, but to serve. Think about that for a minute. God, the creator of this world, the giver of all things that are good, serving us. Holiness takes on a whole other dimension. God is not holy like the other gods were holy. God is not holy like the bells who Israel turned to to try, to try to help their crops revive. Baal, the rain god, the storm god. God is not the gods of Assyria, who when, when they were threatened by the powers around them, the Israelites turned to Assyria and sought an alliance with them to protect them from their other enemies. And in so doing, conformed their ways to other gods. We're not sitting here waiting to to avoid the destruction of God, we're sitting here waiting to trust in the love of God and trust that God is our future. Love is our future. Compassion is our future. And if God is holy in that way, it behooves us always. If we're going to view ourselves as being holy, as God, the creator of this world, is holy, to also live in that way. God has really done nothing throughout Scripture and throughout history but to seek to draw closer and closer to us every day. It's closer and closer to us without reserve, without hesitation. And never did that become more a reality than when Jesus Christ was born. And Jesus Christ grew up and matured and grew in the favor of of God and man. And when Jesus touched all those who were considered unclean, that the holy in town, they didn't touch. They didn't go with. They didn't dine with those folks. But Jesus is saying, no, if I'm going to dine with you, 
you're going to dine with who I call you to dine with. Not out of some domineering, godlike ways, but to say, look, I'm giving you this great grace. And it's not just for you, it's for everyone. There's really no great reminder of that than in the, in the psalm that was the theme of the CCA retreat this week. A psalm that celebrates the majesty, the glory, the great works of God. And in Psalm 8 and 9, In that verse 8 and 9 of Psalm 145, it says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his compassion is over all that he has made. All humanity, all creation, is offered God's grace. We know we don't deserve it. We know we resist at every turn, but we know it's given, that grace, that compassion. And as soon as we respond and we say, yes, Lord, I understand your great love and compassion, and that not only saves me, but it calls me to help be a part of the salvation of all the world, shaping us in a way that we rediscover that you created us to love you and love one another, and turn away from the chaos and the greed and violence of this world, and everything that's driving us apart while you seek to bring us together. Yes, Lord, I will follow in that way. Yes, Lord, I will trust in you to provide. Yes, Lord, I will dine with the unclean, the sinners, the tax collectors. I will befriend those who are the outright outcasts of this world. I will offer the same love and grace to them that you have given to me, knowing that it is you that is revealed in my work and not my own. Now the trick is, as we seek to share God with the world, as we seek to bring glory to God in our lives, there's a lot of things and people and groups seeking our alliance. There's a lot of things seeking our alliance. And we have to be utterly careful. Because these aren't things or people or groups that are altogether bad, necessarily altogether evil, but they are things that if they become the ultimate in our lives, they will rob us of the joy that God's grace offers. This is where the message might get difficult. Because we all have something that we've aligned ourselves to. And we have a habit of justifying that as a part of God's work in our lives. It's like comedian Jim Jim Gaffigan talks about McDonald's. And he goes to McDonald's and he'll get like the dollar cheeseburger, double cheeseburger. And he'll eat it and eat it and eat it. And he leaves and he doesn't want anyone to see him that he went there. He says, you don't want your neighbors to know you went to McDonald's. He says, what's wrong with McDonald's? I mean, come on. Everybody has their McDonald's. Everybody has their McDonald's. It might be us weekly. It might be this. It might be that. But everybody has that thing that they're hiding from everyone else. Because they've relied on that rather than God. I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) I mean, think about it. We all have our McDonald's. We all have the thing that we turn to when we're stressed, when we're down, 
that holds us back. It may be something as extreme as drugs and alcohol. It may be something as extreme as you know, it's turning our backs on our families or whatnot. I mean, I'll, I'll, tell my, I'll tell on myself a little bit. After the CCA retreat on Friday, where I went and delivered a message, got two miles from there, ran over something, my tire went flat. So I was there in the heat, changing that tire, thinking, oh my goodness, I got so much to do this afternoon. I was stressed out. So I, I get the tire changed, spare on, go to Firestone. You know, I've got a warranty, so there's not as much stress as there would be. They're able to fix the flat, but while they're working on it, I'm like, you know, I need lunch. Is there somewhere nearby I can walk over and get, get something to eat? They said, yeah, there's a Wingstop right around the corner. And I said, ooh, Wingstop. Wingstop sounds good. I've been to Wingstop in a long time. I'm going to give me some wings. But I get there, walk up to the counter. I order the, the individual combo meal, six wings, order my favorite flavors. But my hands were dirty from changing the tire. I was like, i got to go to the restroom and wash my hands. So I'm in there, and I'm washing my hands, and it hits me. I ate lunch at the retreat. <laughs> I ate. I'm not hungry. I'm stressed out. I'm turning to food for comfort. What is up with this scenario? But whether I should have, whether it was rational, rationalizing it or not, I said, well, I already paid. They're already cooking the food. <laughs> and they do have really good fries. So I had me some wings. <laughs> but there's all these things we turn to. All these things we turn to. And frankly, our voices tend to grow less and less compassionate as we turn to these things. Because we, assume, we start to assume we've got it all figured out, and those that aren't like us don't. Or we start to rebuff any, any uh, confrontation, gentle confrontation someone might give us out of concern or out of the desire that we as a people can be much greater and reveal the glory of God in much more significant ways than we do. Because let's face it, when we start putting labels on ourselves and others, I just don't know that we're serving the glory of God. When we start focusing on more whether or not someone puts a D after their name or an R after their name, or where and when they may have been born somewhere, or or all these things because we've got it figured out and everybody just listen to us. This world will be all right. But when we start to do that, we have to consider, at least consider, that what we're doing might be aligning ourselves too significantly with things other than God. God may be at work in any or all of those things. But I sure hope whatever we align ourselves with, that it is absolutely and by far secondary to the God of all grace, the God of all compassion, who looks on us with anguish and says, I can't just destroy what I've created. I cannot destroy what I love. I cannot destroy what I've called. It's too special to me. My holiness after all, because I am God, won't allow it. So this is our call today. To hear the call of God, to receive God's grace, but also to hear the call of God to give that grace extravagantly. This will come with risk. 
Jesus wasn't afraid of risk. Jesus wasn't afraid of stirring up a little bit of scandal. Touching an unclean man or woman, going to dine with Zacchaeus, standing between the men with the stones and the adulteress they've thrown on the ground in front of them. Jesus wasn't afraid of a little bit of scandal. Because Jesus was about love and compassion. Because life is a little bit like a sitcom. The stars of a sitcom, their lives are a train wreck. It's hard to find a hero in the sitcom. But somehow, because someone outside of that scenario is writing the story, it seems to all work out in the end. Ross and Rachel get together. (laughs) Oh, youth, I'm sorry. Ross and Rachel, they were in the show called Friends. (laughs) All throughout the series, they were together. They were broken up. They were together. They were broken up. Okay, you know? Okay, good. I, I wanted to make sure I wasn't excluding anyone in my message. It's kind of like our Team Edward, Team Jacob, when I was a teenager. Oh, man. Oh, I just lost half the audience. Oh, man. <laughs> but life is like a sitcom. Life is like a sitcom. But it doesn't work out in the end because we got it figured out. It's working itself out. It'll work itself out in the end because God's got it figured out. And if we'll place our trust in that, if we're willing to sacrifice for the love and grace that God offers us, then we'll come to the end of this passage today. And we'll hear that lion roar. And we'll hear the call of God to return from our waywardness, from our selfishness, from our chaos, from our violence and our greed, and everything else that the waywardness from the path of God entails. We'll hear the call of God and we'll return serving God and loving one another. And we'll recognize this, that that lion, which earlier in Hosea is a beast bringing judgment, we'll realize that that lion roaring is Jesus at the resurrection. The lion that says, you know what? You gave in to the temptation. You gave in to the chaos of this world. You gave in to the violence, the greed, the selfishness, and all that that entails. And I absorbed all of that in my life. But everything you had to offer in rebellion couldn't stop the love and compassion of God in this world. Because Jesus, who was God, who placed his trust and God's love alone was victorious in the end and will be victorious in the end. No matter how much we resist, no matter how much we turn away, it's like uh, Desmond Tutu tells in the story when he was surrounded by South African soldiers with guns as he was hosting a worship service in his church. He stopped and he prayed. And after he prayed, he looked at the soldiers and he said, Hey, why don't you join the winning side? God's bringing us back together. God's bringing us together in love. God is going to purify our waywardness with grace and compassion. And we may step off that firmament. We may bring destruction on ourselves. We may bring division from one another. 
We may wonder what tomorrow holds. But as we seek what tomorrow holds for our lives, for our church, for our community, no matter how long we've been dominated, sorry David, dominated by the questions of where God is or what's God doing, we'll be delivered. We'll come out stronger on the other side. And because we're full of God's grace and compassion, a lot of other people will. Because we will have laid down ourselves with our own biases and our prejudices and our self-righteousness and embraced the grace and compassion of God.